Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Chi Lu and Daniel Gross. Chi is the COO of Baidu, and Daniel's a partner here at YC. So just before we get going, if you haven't yet subscribed or reviewed the podcast, it'd be awesome if you did. All right, here we go. All right. Hello. Um, my name is Daniel. I'm a partner at Y Combinator, uh, and I'm here today uh, with Chi Lu, who's the COO uh, of Baidu and is in particular focused on a lot of their AI strategy. Um, so Chi, thank you so much for coming today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Um, cool. So I guess first question uh, that uh, is on my mind is, and I think many others, um, is help us understand why you left. Your pre- previous to Baidu, you were very um, senior at Microsoft. Um, and a lot of us are wondering why you decided to leave to Baidu. So two things. One is I left Microsoft uh, purely for uh, personal reasons because I had an injury. Uh, I broke my, uh, broke my uh, left hip. So I needed a second surgery and need to take some time off because my job at the Microsoft was very critical to the company. I thought it's for the best interest of the company. Uh, for me to uh, move on. A good, great thing is, was that I had a, a good successor uh, who is extremely capable. I'm super happy that he uh, is taking over and uh, leading the company's productivity business moving forward. And in particular, also, I was able to have a very good relationship with Microsoft. I uh, uh, continue to serve as the personal advisor to the CEO, Satya Nadala, and also to Bill Gates. So when I go back to Seattle, I often go see them. Mm. And then how did you decide to go to Baidu as opposed to any other place? Yeah. So that's uh, for a simple reason, uh, which is AI plus China. Uh, because uh, we uh, all know, I guess most people in our field uh, will agree, uh, AI is the next big wave. I think AI plus China is, is uh, particularly meaningful because... Uh, in my views, uh, China has a structural advantage in terms of AI technological development and commercializations. Uh, in that context, uh, Baidu offers a, a very unique opportunity for me. First of all, Baidu, uh, in many ways, is the Google of China. Its uh, heritage was search engine. And as a result, I was from engineering uh, capability perspective and a cultural perspective, uh, is uniquely positioned to uh, seize the AI opportunity. And also, I happen to be uh, a friend, uh, knows Robin Lee, the founder and CEO, for almost 20 years. So there's a lot of uh, long-term relationship and uh, trust. So that was a uh, just a good opportunity for me to, to take on. Mm-hmm. Um, so in what ways uh, is China's approach to AI different from America's? I think... Uh, first of all, I think it's environmentally different. And approach-wise, uh, I'll come back to the approach aspects from my vantage point. Uh, from environmental perspective, I think China has uh, unique structural advantage uh, for uh, AI technological development and commercialization of AI technologies for a simple reason. Uh, if, if, uh, if I may just explain my thinking on why this is uh, so. Uh, because in this wave of technology development, uh, it's, there's one aspect that's fundamentally different from previous generation of big uh, technology wave, which is data 
plays a uh, essential role uh, because I often use this as a simple example. Uh, you can have 10,000 engineers, great engineers, or you can have a million great engineers. You will not be able to build a system that understands human conversations. You will not be able to build a system that will recognize objects or scenes of images because you need to have data. Uh, a simple analogy uh, is very much like human. Uh, when you and I grew up, uh, it's not like our parents or God is writing coding to our brains. Uh, our built-in uh, uh, neural engines uh, has the ability to learn through our uh, sensory uh, systems, essentially our perceptive systems, uh, whether it's uh, visual systems or whether it's auditory systems, that we are able to observe the world uh, our observation, those sensor, these are data, uh, because these data carries knowledge, and we are able to learn from our interaction with the world. So as we grow up, we acquire knowledge. And same thing happens for AI technology. It's not about writing code this time. It's about uh, writing code that implements AI algorithms with both soft, soft and hardware. They are able to learn, and learn knowledge from the data. So if you Take that perspective, data, data in my view is for the AI era, what becomes a primary means of production, which is by definition means of production is a form of capital. Because if you look at his, historically, in our human history, let's say in the agriculture era, uh, land is the primary means of production so that you can see everything is organized around the land. All the walls uh, are competing for land. Uh, in the industrial eras, uh, the means of production are primarily labor and equipment. Uh, different type of equipment, and certainly financial capitals, uh, human talent. But in the AI era, uh, my view is data will become as a primary means of production. So harnessing data becomes key. Mm. And then comes back to China, because China has a, a different uh, social economical policy environment that makes, uh, for certain segments, not on everything, for certain segments, it's much easier to acquire and harness data. And with that, it creates an environment for developing AI technologies and then commercialize those technologies for, towards uh, market-oriented applications or social applications. So uh, it is in that context, uh, China has a structural advantage. And then in terms of approach, uh, there will be you know, cultural differences uh, even in uh, entrepreneurial world, the startups uh, in, in China environment, they tend to work in their ways. That, I, I would say, uh, Silicon Valley in China, you know, there's commonalities, there's some different approaches, but that's not the, the bigger factor. In my view, it's, it's the environment that's the more determinant factors making China uh, to be uh, a relatively, compared to other marketplaces or other regions, uh, a better place for AI development because data. Interesting. And I guess one question I'm wondering in particular is, in the U.S., there's this belief that one of the ways China's somehow doing better when it comes to technology is that the government is much more integrated with companies and their initiatives. Um, is that something that you see at Baidu as you guys focus on your different AI initiatives? Are you able to work very closely with the government? Uh, in general, the Chinese government at this stage uh, has a lot more willingness uh, to invest in infrastructures, in talent, and they, in particular, see AI as an opportunity for China to, in many ways, to ride that big wave, uh, to elevate 
uh, its innovation capacity. So there was a, about somewhere between one month, two months ago, there was a, a white paper uh, that's published by the Chinese government. Uh, it actually spells out in pretty much uh, a certain level of details about uh, by 2030, uh, how Chan the Chinese government plan to systematically invest in infrastructures, talent, and technologies to uh, enable China to lead in AI technologies in many different dimensions. So in general, the, the government is indeed has a lot more willingness and commitment to, to invest. And with regard to private company, uh, particularly a company like Baidu, which is more uh, a uh, viewed as culture, practice-wise, closer to American company, it's listed in NASDAQ. Uh, internal working culture is very entrepreneurial, uh, closer to Silicon Valley style. So we do, in many ways, uh, operate independently. We view, essentially, market opportunities as the primary uh, uh, objectives to pursue those opportunities. And when there are win-win uh, alignment with the government initiative, we welcome that. For example, uh, Baidu uh, is the host of a national deep learning labs. And Baidu is also uh, uh, working with uh, various different uh, government uh, entities when they have uh, expressed willingness to, to support in certain areas of AI technology, for example, let's say for self-driving cars. So we will work with those government uh, entities to discuss opportunities uh, that are mutually beneficial. But our our, as a company, our primary means is market success. Mm -hmm. We don't have sort of any other agendas uh, because we are a independent company. We want to build products that serves our users. When there's synergistic opportunity with government support, we will uh, collaborate with government when they are uh, truly bene mutual benefit, uh, mutual win-wins. Do you think that China um, will beat the United States to having mass adoption of self-driving cars? Yeah. So my belief is the opportunity to commercialize and uh, deploy uh, autonomous driving technologies in various forms, uh, China will be, uh, China will have opportunities uh, get ahead of the United States over the next three to five years. Primary for, I would say, a, a few areas. One is uh, different regions, whether it's municipality or provincial government or central government, uh, they see this as an opportunity for uh, the China's auto industry to get out of where, right now the China auto industry, there's no real strong technology, uh, heavy fragmentation with over 250 OEMs. Uh, the Chinese government very much would like to take the uh, autonomous uh, driving dimension of innovations to enable the Chinese China auto industry to uh, leapfrog, to be uh, the world's best and leading the world. So, so the government is a factor. Uh, for example, uh, there's five municipal government right now, uh, members or partners of Baidu's open uh, autonomous driving ecosystem, open platform called Apollo. So they work with us on a variety of initiatives. For example, uh, new kind of driving schools that will certify uh, autonomous vehicles for different level of maneuverability. Just like a driving school today, uh, they will give, they, they will certify human drivers. You know, mm. you pass through certain tests. So we are working on that, and we're working with uh, uh, a, a new uh, city is is being kind of 
built ground up uh, uh, by the Chinese government plan will be bigger than Shenzhen, will be bigger than Dubai in, in, in the five to 10 years. It's called a Xiong'an. It's a massive new city is being built up from, you know, from pretty much zero. So working with them on uh, designing new infrastructures, uh, new segment of the cities that makes much easier for autonomous uh, vehicles to be deployed. Uh, just as an example, let's say today's cities, you have uh, streetlights and the streetlights in many ways is a sensor device. It enabled the sensors of a vehicle uh, to be able to better see the road. It just happened to be the one entity that, that does the sensing are human, and human use the eyeballs. When when stuck, uh, you you won't be able to see the road, see the see the uh, separation of the roads, and you have streetlights. But imagine in the future when the sensor is not done by the human eyeballs, right. but different uh, sensor, whether it's lidar, radar, uh, or uh, cameras, whatever the sensor technology you use, the future city infrastructures, those streetlights, right. uh, will be intended for non-human sensor capabilities to see the road, to be able to navigate the road. So, so we are actively designing those uh, new type of infrastructures and uh, having uh, ongoing discussion with these uh, municipal government uh, to lay out plans to build those infrastructures with the intent to uh, have commercial deployment of autonomous driving uh, in uh, various forms. So, so if you combine all those uh, efforts together, uh, I very much believe uh, in the next three to five years, we'll see autonomous driving in China gets deployed uh, in more variety in larger scales than uh, other markets. Huh, fascinating. Um, going back a, a little bit, uh, to kind of more broadly, um, China and the United States. Um, you were managing very large software engineering teams here in the United States, and now you're doing the equivalent in China. What are some cultural differences you've noticed in terms of how people work, um, how you have to manage in between those two countries? Yeah. First of all, Baidu's engineering culture, product culture, uh, is very similar to Microsoft, uh, very similar to what I know of Google. Even though I haven't worked at the Google, but I have enough interaction with friends who work at the Google. Essentially, very heavy in technology, very heavy in algorithms, very heavy in uh, large-scale computings, very weak in product design, very weak in understand user needs, human needs. As a result, the technology is good, the product generally isn't great. Right. Uh, just you know, I'm not. Criti critiquing or criticizing my former colleagues, but Microsoft as a company, uh, in many ways, lagged behind uh, companies such as Apple and Facebook in building uh, truly uh, mobile, particularly mobile uh, consumer product that struck the emotional connections with users and the, the, whether it's application or services or devices, uh, the fit and the finish, the uh, experience design is very much uh, more than uh, appeal to young demographic, young generations. Microsoft as a company struggled on that. And I see similar things from what I can see. Uh, Google as a company, their product that I use. And the Baidu is exactly the same way. That's one aspect. I always try to change the engineering culture at Microsoft. Actually, that was the reason why I broke my leg. But it's a <laughs> different story. The, because you need to earn, learn, Learning new way of doing things. Can you just tell us, yeah, about the bicycle that you rode, which is, I think, how you got that injury? Yeah, because it was a, there's something called a backward brain bike. Uh, 
the, the, if you search on YouTube how to ride a bicycle, there's plenty of uh, videos. Essentially, the, the bike goes the other way. If you turn the handle this way, the, the wheel actually goes the other way. Uh, the, the reason, there's some profoundly important reasons because, uh, first of all, uh, we human learn, uh, there's three primary ways we learn. Uh, this is called experiential learning, and the bicycle riding is the often said as best example because you cannot learn how to ride a bicycle by watching other people riding bicycle, by reading about it, by people telling about it. You have to ride a bicycle yourself and often bumping, bruising, hurting. But guess what? There's one thing. Once you learned, you never forget. It's in the muscle memory. You don't think about it. And that's the problem for large organizations, for cultures, because mm. the reason those big companies, they couldn't survive when you wave come, that's based on uh, Rebe- Professor Rebecca Hedison's study at the Harvard Business School, is that those mature organizations, their muscle memory, the way they talk to customer, the day we do research, the day we design experiences was built like 30 years ago. And they, they don't, you know, they, they try to think, but their muscle memory don't think, right? So they would just do things that way. So if you ask me why Microsoft couldn't get mobile at all, isn't that we're not working hard, we're working super hard? Isn't that people are not smart? We tried everything. We buy Nokia. We, we build a Cortana. We, you know, you name it. We, we tried everything. But the product, honestly, sucks. It, 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 it's just because the muscle memory. So I, I was searching for an answer. Rebecca Henderson was the one who convinced me this is the real problem. So uh, uh, Microsoft colleague of mine, his name is Bill Buxton. He's one of the kind of people. He's like, hey, Chi, you should try this bicycle thing. It was really illustrating. So we built the bike, uh, Bill Buxton, another one, uh, uh, the three of us uh, will try to practice because this bike, for a normal adult who knows how to bike, takes you about eight months training every day. And once you learn how to ride that bike, you won't be able to ride the normal bike anymore because you need to rewire your muscle, uh, your brains. And I think for uh, larger organization, culture change is that difficult because it's your muscle memory. The way you do things, uh, it just becomes a bit you don't even think about. Even though the CEO say, we're going to die. You guys have to figure out mobile. You know, they try, try, try. The mobile product just like a PC product, smaller phone, right? Because that's how they, how they do it. So, uh, but we're coming back on culture. I see Baidu has very similar traits of Microsoft that I work with. So what I'm working on today with Baidu is really to change that engineering culture to be a lot more product centric, to be a lot more understanding user needs, particularly, uh, for mobile product, for AI product. And then I, I want to briefly answer, uh, the, the engineering culture between uh, uh, companies that are in China uh, versus companies that are in the, in the United States. Uh, there are very, very various different uh, aspects of it. The biggest thing, and I, I, I need to perhaps think more about summarizing in my head what I observed so far, some of the key differences in terms of product engineering culture. The one thing I would say is start off for me, I learned a lot in my eight months plus uh, living, working in China, is the product people in China a lot more philosophical. Hmm. Uh, they are a lot more reflective. They think a lot deeper than what you would typically f- observe from a product people when they describe their product. And also the, the Chinese, uh, the R&D product leaders uh, emphasize a lot more uh, self-reflection uh, uh, they call it, they use the word cognition, but it means a person's ability to, to understand, 
to uh, make judgment, make decisions. Essentially, they've emphasized a lot more uh, self-improvement for product people in particular. Interesting. How you elevate your cognitive capacity. So if you ask me, the one thing stood out for me is I used to believe the, the product people in the United States companies is better than uh, now I kind of held the other way around. I, fi- I see better product people more often uh, in, in Baidu, in other Chinese companies that I interacted with than uh, perhaps I would say on average the, you know, the percentage. Huh. Well, so on that point, um, there's, the, there's another uh, belief, I think, in the West that, uh, you know, California and Silicon Valley are very creative environments, and they really allow ideas to come up and bubble up from any person in an organization, versus China, where the image, I guess, um, that we think to ourselves is a very structured society that is very good at implementing something, but maybe not as good at creative free thought. Uh, would, you, would you agree with this sentiment at all? And if so, how do you think that plays out for, say, doing core research that involves a lot of creativity? Yeah, so great question. That, that's a good one. So I would say there are different degree of uh, truth towards the top-down nature for Chinese company. Baidu, even though uh, among the Chinese tech company, Baidu is the kind of the closest to, in terms of culture to Silicon Valley a lot of people, their pedigrees are Google, uh, worked at Google, worked at Microsoft, uh, meaning English is also kind of a common working language. You, you won't have any problem if you just, uh, you know, speak English or writing email English. Uh, but even that, the top-down uh, phenomenon happens. And my, my hypothesis was this is perhaps due to 2,000-plus uh, years of Confucianism. You know, the Confucius is essentially harmony through hierarchy, right? So that's the central idea of uh, Confucianism. So having said that, uh, the company that I I work with, uh, including Baidu, uh, all realize uh, driving innovations is a lot more about empowering teams, empowering capable leaders to experiment, to try uh, new ideas at the the, uh, fast velocity. Uh, Baidu does a lot of those, and... Uh, in the startups that I interacted with, they emphasize that aspect a lot. There's no difference in terms of the belief and the practices than Silicon Valley startups that I see. And uh, the large company, one company I'll probably point to, I believe overall does a good job, is Tencent. Uh, Tencent, uh, they have this challenging culture. Any ideas, they encourage to challenge the, uh, the more authority of senior peoples. And also, for any major initiatives or any areas of new innovation, they tend to have two teams, three teams working on the same thing. Huh. There's a lot more internal competitive dynamics that are going on. And one last thing, uh, in Baidu, we have this quarterly meeting. We have all our company's directors. We have about 200 directors. Uh, once a quarter, we will invite speakers. Uh, and... Uh, the past few speakers, they all emphasized the aspects of building a learning organization uh, so that a truly thriving organization, each cell, each team, uh, they are able to be nimble, adapt, quickly learn. So even though there are this couple thousand years of Confucianism, I think it's still somewhere there, uh, reflects in different, to different degree in different companies. But by and large, uh, driving innovation 
uh, empowering teams, empowering leaders are the, the common understanding. And everyone listening is striving to do more and do better in that regard. Hmm. So, so there's no fundamental difference than Silicon Valley, I would say. Interesting. And, and do you think that Baidu and Tencent then are kind of the exception to the rule? Like, is, is, are, do you guys feel somewhat alien compared to other Chinese companies which may be more structured? Yeah. So I would say among the, the internet or, or technology, IT technology related to the companies, even though I haven't talked to a whole lot of them yet, but based on what I have seen so far, uh, are largely in the mode that I just described. Uh, but when you go out of that range, you go to much more traditional companies, uh, let's say uh, steel industries or uh, traditional retails, uh, then you will see more of the, 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 the Confucianism hierarchical styles in management. Uh, that, again, I haven't done uh, studies, it's just my uh, perception. Uh, I would say this is how I perceived. So today it feels like, um, in particular, uh, when it comes to AI research, most of the great research is still being done here in the United States. Um, do you think that will change over time? Will we start to see you know, 20 30% of the papers suddenly be published from China? Or will America kind of always be the hub of AI innovation? Yeah, so this is the one topic I had... A- Somewhat ongoing discussion with uh, many of my colleagues in China. Our current view is uh, the very top end of research uh, that's fundamentally paving new ground. Uh, I would say the example in AI would be, let's say, uh, DeepMind and OpenAI. I think that won't happen uh, in the next uh, few years. That won't happen in China. Unlikely, I wouldn't say won't. It's unlikely to happen. The odds of that type of research happening in China uh, perhaps will take uh, quite a few years. Uh, right now, we see the, uh, the research community, particularly the upper echelon, that the gap is closing. Uh, the leading Chinese universities, uh, the way they, in many ways, the way the gap is being closed is a lot of those researchers, they, their pedigree, they study in top tier university in the United States, whether it's you know, Stanford, Princeton, and they go back. Uh, so the gap is closing, but the overall environment, the culture uh, context isn't quite there yet, meaning that it's completely driven by your imagination. Uh, the the social economic surrounding is still not quite the same as the United States, whereby you have truly world-class people driven by pure uh, the uh, the desire to seek knowledge, the desire to unleash imagination. Uh, often these researchers are done in the context of personal fames, economic mm. uh, uh, payback. Once you have those, you you constrain yourself. You you don't see very far. You don't go pursue the, the bigger dreams. Uh, but our collective belief, among, at least myself, uh, my uh, bunch of colleagues, friends, we, t- we all believe uh, given enough time, uh, let's say in the next... Uh, five to ten years, you will see uh, top echelon research work happen in Chinese in- institutions, and it is certainly uh, my hope that in the next, in the summer between five to years to ten years uh, windows, uh, we will have uh, equivalent of research organizations, let's say uh, OpenAI, uh, DeepMind type, that will be truly uh, do groundbreaking uh, research towards AGI, 
or different type of initiatives that would be at the very uh, four frontiers of uh, extending the scope of humanness. Hmm. Uh, it's it's take time. We believe it takes time. Not in the short 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 future yet, but it will happen. How are you going to nurture that? Are you are you going to try to create a Baidu research lab that is somehow has a different culture around it than what traditional Chinese academia has? Yeah. So there are several dimensions. One is corporate research labs. Uh, Baidu is doing quite a bit. And uh, our peers, whether it's Alibaba or Tencent, they are also investing quite heavily in corporate research labs. At the same time, the national labs, uh, the top-tier universities, uh, they are doing more and more. And there's also, uh, in the private sectors, there's always ongoing discussion, a new type of uh, research uh, entities can be uh, envisioned and they can be created. So there's uh, ongoing set of ideas being explored. I think it likely will be a combination of corporate research lab, university, and somewhat new generation, let's say open air type research mm-hmm. uh, organizations will be established over time that will be capable of carrying uh, top tier research work uh, that's based in China. Hmm. Interesting. Um, shifting gears to a completely different topic, uh, another thing that is a hotly debated topic out here in Silicon Valley is cryptocurrency. Um, no one really knows how to understand China's approach to cryptocurrency. So what's your take on it? Yeah, so I will speak from Baidu's perspective, uh, not necessarily my personal view, because I haven't spent enough time on this particular subject to uh, kind of develop views that I, I thought that would be educated views. I would say is more from Baidu's company perspective. One is uh, we view uh, blockchain, uh, the underlying technology as a fundamental uh, foundational capabilities the company needs to have. Uh, because uh, Baidu is in the financial services business. So we have a, a unit we do, we offer our financial services, and we try to turn that into a uh, platforms to enable uh, traditional uh, financial institutions to be able to uh, modernize their businesses. And we, uh, we have a team internally build up uh, a set of core infrastructures that enable us to build a future generation of financial services using that. And at the same time, we're also using blockchain-based uh, technologies to build uh, a new generation of data platforms. Because when I said earlier, uh, data will be a uh, primary means of production. Uh, and the ownership, provenance, uh, value attribution of data will become increasingly important. So we want to make sure that we, Baidu as a company, uh, build the right infrastructure to anticipate for the future of the world. We as a company at this stage do not have active participation in the cryptocurrency aspects of the, uh, the equation. Uh, with regard to, I want to add one more thing about the research uh, you mentioned, which is in some ways important, I, I, I forgot to mention. Essentially, we now have a view, but this is more of a Baidu's view. Uh, we thought that China as a nation has been a talent exporter. Uh, we essentially send our best people to the United States. Some of them will come back, most of them don't. Uh, we believe China as an economy, uh, as a market, uh, has the opportunity to become a net, not necessarily net, but at least top-tier talent importers. So in some ways, the, the Baidu Research Lab uh, in Silicon Valley is intent to be the, the, uh, the base station, if you will, to attract 
truly world-class researchers to uh, work uh, in an environment whereby they, ha- they can have access to vast amount of computing resources, data, uh, data assets they may not otherwise necessarily have access to had they work in an organization, research organization in the United States. So, and also in terms of uh, collaborations, uh, we are actively working with top-tier university, whether it's MIT, Stanford, CMUs. And the goal I set for my team is, uh, one is we want to collaborate and fund uh, some of the very best faculty members, graduate students, and when uh, PhD students uh, in the future for those top-tier university graduate, uh, Baidu needs to be the top five names when they think about which company they want to work for. So uh, it's not necessarily uh, Chinese companies' research labs are done by Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, those research labs increasingly will be, will be done by uh, global talent, and they're working on problems that's targeted towards the China market and then has the opportunity to, to globalize it. So can I maybe spend one minute on, on to give you that? Because I think it's important lens on how we think about top-tier researchers. Uh, the context is the technology market uh, up to this point, by and large, uh, is something uh, we at the Microsoft always say it's designed for America, tweak slightly, sell global industry. Mm-hmm. Because United States is the only, mar- only country has all those ingredients, talent, capital, risk capital, technology, market. It's the only place. This conditions, uh, this combination of conditions doesn't exist in Europe, doesn't exist in any other regions. But China now has all these. Not, not quite at the top tier, not quite as good as the United States, but they have all those ingredients. Uh, it is my belief the technology industry would be a, for a while, uh, would be a two-pillar, uh, essentially driven by the United States and the and portion of the company come from China. So if you view from that perspective, the product that increasingly initially targeting for China market, uh, we have uh, globalization opportunities uh, increasingly because this is how we're going to attract uh, truly world-class people to work at the company like, like Baidu. Uh, just as one example, let's say for uh, smart homes, uh, we believe uh, the product uh, that's uh, landing in China market well for small home product, whether it's speakers or new TVs use voice, dialogue-based interfaces, we have a better shot of globalizing than uh, those products will be designed in the United States for one important reason. Uh, homes in the United States only works in North America, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of Europe. Outside those, you don't have homes like this. You have very spacious, different rooms, the acoustic environment, far field, speech recognition, wake up wood has to be five meters or long. You know, you optimize for this. The ho- a home in China is a lot closer to a home in Japan, a home in India, a home in Brazil. So we actually do have, have, have that view. So in Baidu, we're building uh, our version of Alexa, our version of Echo type of systems with the long-term aspiration of globalizing those products. And because we believe uh, we are targeting a home environment, uh, acoustic environment, uh, usage environment that's closer uh, to, the, to our initial target market than the United States, the initial target market. So I think these cases, uh, we will find more and more of those cases as we move forward. And that's one important factor. Uh, those leading Chinese companies increasing, in my views, 
we have the opportunity or ability to attract world-class researchers mm. uh, to be part of what they try to do. Interesting. Um, I want to shift gears kind of uh, one last time um, to, to a different uh, collection of topics, which is around management. A lot of people listening to this podcast, um, maybe CEOs or managers, and they're trying to figure out how to manage their first engineering team. So what are some learnings um, that I guess you've collected along your way managing very large teams at Yahoo, Microsoft, and now Baidu that you would give to someone who's just starting out in engineering management? First of all, uh, I would say managing an engineering team, uh, particularly if for the first time you're managing an engineering team, uh, you need to focus on making sure that the, uh, the engineering foundations, particularly uh, build processes, build tools, uh, well-designed, well-engineered, well-taken care of. My learning of managing engineering teams is that if you take slacks in those regards, ultimately what you pay, uh, it's like the boat angles becomes bigger and bigger. Anytime you, because you, you will always have pressure to ship product, uh, build a business, get a customers, uh, there's always the temptations uh, to cut corners. Uh, don't, uh, because uh, you will be far better served uh, upfront, making sure that your engineering foundations are sound. That's one important aspect for uh, first-time uh, managers to manage engineering team. Uh, the second is uh, engineers, uh, I would say, is, is means to an end. Uh, the leader himself or herself and the teams pay attention to product pay attention to how the product gets used, uh, understand today's usage scenario, usage patterns, anticipate the future usages, in my view, is extremely important because uh, you won't be able to truly build great engineering systems or engineering capabilities without grounding those in the product context. Uh, in particular, uh, immerse yourself uh, in truly understanding what the users are using a product today and how that usage will grow in the future so you can anticipate. Uh, that's another aspect. The third related to, the, to that is uh, understand the business uh, because a lot of times the engineering work will be driven by monetizations, driven by distributions. And these are just as important uh, as you grow the company's business. And understanding the uh, business models, uh, how that impacts your product, how that impacts your engineering capabilities, uh, early on and embrace those challenges up front. It may slow you down in certain aspects, but it pays off uh, for you to uh, take time to understand these, build those capabilities in, and anticipate uh, the future needs. I would say the last thing is, is just cultivate a uh, learning, iterative experimentation uh, culture and mindset, because it's always been a journey. You may th think at the first point, you figure out, I know how to do this. This product should do it this way. But the market is always fluid. The competition is always dynamic. Uh, setting yourself, your team up for rapid iterations, for quick uh, uh, iterates through different type of ideas and be able to seize new opportunities uh, is also very, very important part for a first-time engineering managers to set the team up for. Hmm. And I guess the related question is, um, what does Chi Lu look for in people when you interview them? They depend on different jobs. So uh, right now, for my current job, the type of people I'm uh, looking forward to, 
are people who really understand the future mainstream users, usage patterns, particularly uh, in-depth understandings of human needs, uh, and also be able to see through the noise and understand the fundamental undercurrent that's driving uh, those human needs. Because I think uh, more and more uh, engineering tools become more mature, product development methodology become more mature, and those all become table stake. What's at the premium will be those individuals who uh, really understand human and can anticipate human needs and can envision experience in that context. Uh, that's uh, what uh, I think be, will be at the premium for most companies that I can uh, see. And uh, if I look for different type of jobs, even though I may not necessarily be hiring a product manager, but I still look for that aspect. Uh, my view on this is uh, product sensitivity is, at, is at the center of every uh, line of work, whether you're a salesperson or marketing person or engineers, uh, even HR person. If you understand the product, uh, it helps you to do your job better. Mm-hmm. So kind of understanding products and predicting uh, future usage patterns. Anticipating. Seeing the future. Uh, to me, this is a, uh, increasingly a foundational strength for any type of leaders. Mm-hmm. I spoke to some of your earlier colleagues at Microsoft, and almost everyone said that you were an incredibly productive person. And so I'm curious to ask you if you were always that way and... If not, what are some tips or tricks you've learned along the way that have kind of made you what you are today? I, I wouldn't say I'm always productive. Uh, I try to be productive. And I think the, what helped me was a uh, simple mindset, more of a, of a personal belief, which is a very simple view. I view myself as a piece of software. Uh, today's version must be better than yesterday's version. Uh-huh. Uh, because the, there's a cliche uh, life is too short. Why live the same day twice? So, and tomorrow's version has to be better than today's. So even though I make mistakes, uh, the mistakes are a important opportunity to learn. So you, are, you can imagine the software will have more if, if statement so that uh, when similar situation happen, you will avoid those. So it's that simple mindset. Uh, keep the curiosity. Uh, keep learning. I w- again, I wouldn't say I'm always productive, but I always try to be more productive. Mm. Um, if someone is listening to this podcast now and is just thinking of somehow getting started, either in the AI world or software engineering more broadly, what would you recommend they do? How should they go about figuring out what to do, where to apply, where to work? I, I, I would say uh, go to uh, Hacker News slash dot uh, GitHub. Uh, read a few uh, articles, comments, and go to uh, GitHub's. To me, uh, get your get get your hands dirty. Uh, grab some piece of code, uh, run a model, and uh, soon you will have uh, inspirations, ideas coming to your mind. And as you keep doing this, I'm pretty confident you will find uh, what you love to do. What was there a point? Uh, in your career where you considered doing something else or was it always clear to you that this was going to be your craft? I actually, yeah. Along the way, I thought about doing various different things. Uh, when I was in China the, in early childhood, I always wanted to be a philosopher because I thought that uh, in order to truly uh, make the world, solve the world's uh, a lot of problems, we need to have philosophical underpinnings. Uh, at the time, I was a little bit influenced by 
uh, studying communi communisms because it was it was required study. We're, we're required to study, you know, what uh, Marx said. That there's there's the communist manifesto. In my view, is one of the even though the theory in my view has has issues, but it was one of the best written manifestos. So I was always envisioning myself being a philosopher. Uh, but along the way, pra pragmatic constraint led me to the current path. Because uh, when I was young, I tried to be an uh, uh, engineer, uh, go to a shipbuilding uh, uh, factory. At the time, I would think was, that was like in the mid or late 70s, building big ships was the kind of the most glamorous job. So if you say I work for a ship building companies, you're kind of, wow, people. Uh, but I, I wasn't uh, strong enough because in my years, only 3% people can go to college. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't heavy enough. You have to be like, for those type of schools, you need to be uh, over 50 kilograms. So, and the way they do it is they weigh you before you kind of go to the exam. So I remember, you know, keep eating, keep eating. Every day weighing, just couldn't get to that 50 kilograms. Couldn't, couldn't get to that. So I, I wasn't qualified for a lot of those. And then I uh, asked around, the people say, uh, oh, I have eyesight problem. I have a nearsight. I couldn't really uh, go to some of the discipline that I want to study. And then uh, there are only two choices left for me to go in terms of uh, field of study, mathematics and computer science. And ask, you know, my neighbors or uh, people for feedback or advice, what should I pick? Uh, people will say, if you study mathematics, you can be a kind of a middle school teacher. Uh, if you study computer science, maybe you can get to work at the radio factory. <laughs> so my parents thought radio factory was better. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's pick computer science. Wow. So I ha really had no idea uh, why. Once I st start to work on this, I truly fell in love, I think, uh, uh, very, very blessed, lucky uh, that I get to work uh, on the things that I uh, was able to do. Do you still code? Not anymore. Huh. So the I read the code. Uh, I read because I, coding I gave up uh, quite a while ago, actually. It was uh, when I was at Yahoo. Uh, I was still doing coding when I was SVP. I thought it's important for me to remain hands-on. But... When it was reaching a point, my boss, uh, Zod at the time, he was yelling at me, like, you are blocking your teams. I think he was right. Because if I don't check in or if I have more bugs, uh, it's actually hurting them more. So what I end up doing is, this is actually brainstorm with, uh, at the Microsoft with Bill quite a bit. Essentially, you need to remain hands-on, remain sharp. My approach is, for the core algorithms, uh, I must understand all the details. For the foundational systems, the architectural design, uh, I want to put myself, I can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best architect, uh, best algorithm people to debate with them why you design that way. But coding, uh, I thought that wasn't the productive thing for me to do uh, anymore. So I gave up when I was uh, at Yahoo uh, at that late stage. I actually want to dig into that a little bit because it's a question I noticed as well at Apple, which is if the uh, SVP... Uh, is involved intimately in the algorithms. Um, on the one hand, you're in control of the entire system. It's quite good. Um, on the other hand, it could be seen as kind of micromanagement. You're not giving an, an opportunity for the directors and the managers to grow. So did you ever get that feedback? Oh, yeah. yeah. And How All did, the time. So, yeah. This is, to me, it's, uh, it can be managed uh, 
properly. Because I view my role is not to make decisions. My role is to challenge you. Mm. So I always say, why you have to design this way? No, I want you to give me a perfect solution because I know algorithm can be this way, but also always made it clear. It's your decision to make. Uh, but I, I see you have holes in your thinking. I want to challenge you. I want to debate with you. So I kind of ask Bill, uh, how do you keep up? Like, what's your approach? He essentially uses a similar approach. You know, he knows the Excel code base extremely, probably better than anybody else. And, uh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> even like, a, well, sometimes we have arguments, like, like, gee, trust me, I know the code better than you do. <laughs> like, I know, I, I got that, but I, the, the, and then you also surround yourself with a bunch of, uh, technical, senior technical talent that they all are superb in each of the domains. You have ongoing dialogues. This is how you essentially keep your mentally very, very sharp. But the decision making to me is managed entirely differently. I think it's very, as a principle, you want to make sure that your chief uh, scientist gets to make algorithmic decisions. Uh, for me, like Young Patterson, now he has a Twitter. He and I have debate arguments for, I don't know, God knows on so many fundamental issues, but always made it clear, young, you, know, you make the decisions. But I think you're wrong here. I disagree with you. I want to debate with you. So I participate on a lot of those to keep myself grounded in my thinkings, understand the, the, the low-level detail of the algorithm, the key algorithms, whether it's in the rankings or uh, content quality, all those, and then on key systems, uh, the underlying systems, low-level fabric. Uh, I thought that it's very important to understand those. And you pick a few more of a pillar type so that your high-level mm. understanding can all the way go to the physical layers. And that helps to calibrate on um, other different type of systems, right? You have something to anchor your thought with. And then in, in management, maybe I will say one more thing. This is a great way to not people bullshit you. Mm -hmm. Because bullshitting happens all the time. Mm -hmm. If you do a few times, they know you can't bullshit this guy because he's going to challenge you. So otherwise, you know, people will cook up beautiful stories, uh, try to, you know, bullshit, right? So because it's in large organizations, everybody wants to be promoted. Uh, not just for anybody intent, but uh, sugar coating, yeah. uh, exaggeration happens all the time. Uh, if you yourself are grounded in core technologies, it helps to set the tone right. When we talk about technology, let's have honest debate, sharp contrast debate, but make it clear. The, the leaders are in charge of making decisions. Mm, so pick a few key technologies that you actually have full stack knowledge of, but don't try to have that knowledge for every single Part of the organization. I think it's impossible. I used to. But then you break, yeah. In terms of a management, I can tell you my practice. At Yahoo, I was able to largely do this. Essentially, my requirement for myself is I can do the jobs two level down. For a number of important reasons, because I can tell whether my guy gets bullshit or not. Right. Because I can often tell you, dude, you got bullshit by your guys because I talk to them, I know what they do. <laughs> because I do that a few times, you know, you set the tune. They work super hard. They make sure that I don't spot them. They got bullshit. Right. So it's, it really kind of anchors the engineering organizations. Everybody's doing the, the best work. Everybody's honest in that communication. Nobody tried to bullshit your boss. So I insist I would do, be able to do the jobs to level down. So I always do that. But at some point, uh, it's just too much. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just physically uh, impossible. Then you pick a few key, to me, it's, I call it my mental model. There's a left, right hand, left hand, particularly for product search, 
essentially algorithm and system architecture play equally important role. Take the core set of algorithms. I study everything, essentially. Uh, all the details I study and debate, discuss with the best people. And then core systems, whether it's content systems, uh, serving systems, uh, from all the low level all the way up, just to pick those. And then you can calibrate all other systems. You can just see, oh, this, that system is similar to this. I don't need to understand detail, but I can extrapolate on how that system works. That's a very interesting rule. So be able to do the job two levels down. Now, um, something that I think will be on the mind of any CEO listening to this, does that apply to Satya? That is to say, do you anticipate Satya being able to do your job and the people that report to you's job? Uh, Satya used to report to me for, <laughs> for, for two years. We kind of talk, uh, talk about that. We all understand there's, there's, uh, there's a spirit of that approach and there's also a limitation uh, on what you can physically do. But if you can find uh, uh, ways that works for you but achieve the same effect, meaning the effect is each leader, uh, you are grounded on technological uh, under the, the real underpinning of technology. You don't build your strategy based on shallow, uh, unsupported understanding of technology. That, to me, mm. is important. Our industry is driven by technology. And there's many different ways to, to do that. Uh, different people may have different approach. As long as you achieve that, as long as you set the tone for any sort of uh, discussions, nobody should bullshit on things. You don't exaggerate. You don't try to get extra credit that you don't deserve. You honestly talk about your technology, honestly talk about your uh, pros and cons. Mm. As long as you achieve that, I think, uh, because it's the outcome versus the, the approach. For me, I used to do that because and with Yahoo is, is kind of easy for me to do. I, uh, I was, uh, when I, leaving Yahoo, I had an organization about 3,000 people. Uh, I thought that I pretty much knew all of them, uh, hired a lot of them, uh, work with a lot of them. So you kind of get used to it, say, okay, tell me, you know, show me your code. Uh, let's look at the system. How you do that things. Uh, but in Microsoft, it's, it's a different setting. I, I don't think you necessarily have to follow that approach as long as the, the goal is achieved. Uh, each senior executives are making your decisions based on grounded understanding of the underpinning of technology and its trajectory. What's drive those technology forward? And then organizationally, uh, there is a truthful, honest conversations. Mm -hmm. If there's a side to error on um, too much or too little rope, it seems like you would err on the side of too little rope. That is to say, if you can micromanage or be too distant, would you err on the side of micromanaging almost? Uh, no. Uh, let me say this. It's a evolving uh, journey for me. Uh, if you ask me today, I will err on the side of giving more for uh, a set of important reasons. It's my learning, particularly more recent, uh, working in China. Increasingly, what I come to realize too is each company, there's an overall uh, operating output capacity. The capacity is really driven by the leader's understanding and the learning capabilities and the structures they set up to enable, unleash more independent points of views, independent learnings to pursue for the same uh, objective, which is the company's overarching vision and the mission. Uh, if you overly constrain to say, 
there's some degrees of uh, degrees of tight ha harmony along certain dimensions. You tend to overly constrain the collective uh, uh, imagination, creativity capacities of the nations. So therefore, I'm more and more in the, in the mystery of designing organization structures and meta models mm. that enable a organizations uh, have more uh, leaders, senior leaders that is able to exercise different way of thinking, uh, different lens of looking at the same problems and to be able to pursue an experiment uh, uh, when we are trying to solve a larger problems or achieve larger missions. Uh, in the past, I was more on the uh, operating more of a so-called tight ship, uh, ensure everything falls in line. But out of my own learnings, at this stage, I see a lot more good by having an organization that gives more ropes to our leaders, give them more autonomy, give them more independence, uh, but somehow orchestrate the entire endeavor in a way that... Uh, the effort all add up towards a common mission, common uh, goals. That to me is uh, an important quest, but I'm, I will lean towards giving more ropes. So I guess you just have to be very careful with those leaders to make sure that they themselves are not giving too much rope and so forth and so forth. Yes. You need to design a meta structure. And this, in that context, uh, motivation is very, very important. Understand the human motivation uh, become a key part of designing that meta structure. And, uh, I think what Reed Hoffman's book Alliance actually is one of the simple but effective model. Essentially, you have three different type of tour duties. And particularly for senior ones, are you really foundational? Uh, let's say, uh, we're gonna go all the way until the end. We're, we're so aligned, our shared goals, or you are much more of a transformational. You just want to uh, get something under your belt so you can move on next phase. As long as you are very clear and then you know that you are senior leaders or you are important position, uh, each people, they're motivated, driven by what? Because uh, motivation is very, very important. Capacity, motivation, in a structure that ties these things, loosely tie these things together, uh, to me is perhaps at the, again, we use the word, at the premium of uh, company design, organization designs, that enables a, a uh, original funding teams or original management teams to unleash a lot more innovation capacities. Hmm. Um, as someone who's very philosophical, um, uh, uh, but is also has an engineering mindset, uh, how do you kind of marry both of those worlds to live by specific rules? Uh, the, the answer I will give you is, when I joined Microsoft, uh, Steve Ballmer asked me to uh, my first speech is uh, give a self-introduction about myself, uh, what I live for, how to do my work. So essentially I wrote uh, uh, a simple set of slides. I think I mentioned five things. Uh, th these are nece not necessarily rules, but I think largely I think will answer your questions. Uh, essentially, uh, first, uh, uh, learn every day. What I just talked about. I view myself as a piece of software. Uh, don't live the same day twice. Uh, the second is uh, uh, integrity. Uh, to me, integrity uh, has three subsets. Uh, one is uh, always speak truthfully. You will not hear me 
say the same thing differently when I talk to different people. Always say, I may be wrong, but I will say the way I see it. Uh, th- that's one aspect of integrity. The others uh, keep my word. If I give you my word, uh, I will do everything I can to give my word. To me, it's very important. The third part of uh, integrity is uh, acknowledging my mistake or weakness. Uh, to me, uh, as a leader, this is an important part of, of have high integrity because we're going to make mistakes. Uh, the leader should publicly acknowledge the mistake you made, all your weaknesses. So that's integrity. And uh, being frugal, uh, always, huh. uh, uh, to me, uh, a penny earned is, uh, a penny saved is same as a penny earned. There's always a rainy day uh, when, can you, when, you, when you can uh, save financial resources, always save because there's always a better way to use those resources. So being frugal to me is always an uh, important part of what I do. Let me see. There's, there's five things, uh, integrity, uh, learn every day, or work ethics. I always say, uh, for me personally, uh, I will do something, I will do a work only if this work I thought that uh, I love it so much, I will be all in. Essentially, leave nothing behind. Uh, every ounce of energy, it's all in there. So that's uh, work ethics. I also, when I say work ethics, I always make it clear that uh, people in my world, you don't have to follow what I do. So, uh, because having a uh, balance the work-life balance uh, is always a good thing for. But for me, I'll always be all in. I forgot there's one more thing. Uh, uh, there's one more thing. I, it's, it's, it, I remember there's five things I said. Give me a little bit more time. Maybe able to, <laughs> to remember. But this is what I share with my teams uh, when I initially joined Microsoft to say who I am, uh, how, do my, how do my work. Those, you can consider those are rules, uh, but this is, these are the the fundamental set of beliefs that guides what I do. I feel like that's a very good note to close on. Chi, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, the video and transcript are at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, please subscribe and review the show. All right. See you next week.